Good morning and welcome to the Quad Chambers Virtual Mayoral Candidate Forum featuring Mr. Keith Aimea and Mr. Rick Blangiardi. My name is Jason Ito, Chair of the Honolulu Japanese Chamber of Commerce. We have a really nice turnout of over 70 members today, so thank you very much for attending. I would like to recognize our Quad Chamber partners. First, Ms. Elvira Lowe, President, Chinese Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii. Uh, Mr. Jeffrey Kuriamat, President, Filipino Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii. Ms. Gina Nakamura, President, Hawaii Korean Chamber of Commerce. And Mr. Wayne Ishihawa, President and CEO of the Honolulu Japanese Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for your partnership. If you're not a current member of a chamber, please con consider joining one of our chambers. And now is also a great time to join the Japanese Chamber as we celebrate our 120th anniversary this year. I would like to thank our event chair, Peter Hamasaki, who is also chair of the Honolulu Japanese Chamber of Commerce's Government Affairs Committee. Thank you for collaborating with our Quad Chamber leaders to make today's forum possible. I especially wanna thank our forum moderator, Ms. Annalisa Burgos. Annalisa is an anchor reporter for KITV Island News and Good Morning Hawaii Weekend Show. Um, before I turn it over to Annalisa, I want to thank Rick and Keith for your personal commitment and dedication to public service. On behalf of the Quad Chambers, good luck and we wish the best to both of you. Thank you everyone for attending. Here's Annalisa. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate that introduction. Hey, everyone. Annalisa Burgos here, and it's my honor to be moderating this discussion. I know uh, these two candidates have had um, several uh, forums and discussions over the last few weeks, months, so we're excited to see if there's some breaking news to come out of, out of this discussion. Let's see, hopefully. Um, but we are here to discuss the issues, some housekeeping uh, issues for you to remind you about. Today it is being recorded, this discussion, and the recording will be made available uh, after the forum. Everyone is on mute, so if you're tuning in, and the chat and the Q&A functions are not available, but the members of the Quad Chamber have submitted questions uh, from the members, of course, in advance, and those are the questions that we are posing to the candidates. So let me begin first by introducing you to our two candidates in alphabetical order based on the bios that we have. Uh, Keith Amamiya, of course, served Oahu as a business executive, nonprofit leader, and lawyer over the last 30 years. He grew up in Hawaii Kai, where he played sports and went to public school through the 10th grade. And after his parents divorced, he lived with his maternal grandmother until his best friend's family adopted him into their home. And Keith paid his way through the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He went to UH Law School. And after seven years as a litigator, Keith left law to become the executive director of the Hawaii High School Athletics Association at the age of 32. And as the head of high school sports, Keith took on several key issues, including equality among the big and small schools, between public and private schools, and the treatment of girls and boys sports. And during the 2009 state budget shortfall that brought furlough Fridays for schools and threatened to end all junior varsity sports at public high schools, Keith spearheaded the Save Our Sports campaign. And by uh, rallying the community, building relationships, and raising over one and a half million dollars through a public-private effort, Keith has helped keep high school athletic programs afloat. Welcome, Keith. All right, next, 
course, we have Rick Blanjardi. He grew up in a working class Boston family and moved to Honolulu in 1965 when his dad was transferred to be a machinist at Pearl Harbor. Rick played football at the University of Hawaii Manoa and after graduation, he spent seven years as a college football coach. He, the last five, of course, of those at UH. As a new young father, he made the financial decision to leave football in 1977 and began selling commercials for KGMB. And he found his calling in television, founded KHNL, brought live UH sports into living room statewide and attracted attention from mainland broadcast corporations. And after successful assignments in Seattle, New York, San Francisco and Los Angeles, Rick became president of Telemundo, America's second largest Hispanic network, even though he doesn't speak Spanish. Found that interesting. Rick returned to Hawaii in 2002 to create Hawaii News Now, where he encouraged a culture of service and made community the foundation of his leadership. And he served on several uh, nonprofit boards, president for the Aloha Council, Boy Scouts of America, chair of the Hawaii Chamber of Commerce, president of NAPOA, trustee for the Hawaii Public Schools Foundation, board member for the YMCA at Honolulu, the American Red Cross, and the Hawaii Food Bank. And of course, has earned numerous honors for his leadership and service to the community. Welcome, Rick. Thank you. All right, so after our intros, uh, we will hear from each of our candidates. They have three minutes to share why they are running for mayor of our city and county, their goals, and of course, what makes them the best candidate. So let's begin with you, Mr. Amamiya. All right, well, thank you, Annalisa, and thank you to the rest of you for this opportunity uh, to speak before all of you. You know, we're in an unprecedented situation with COVID-19, and so I hope everyone is uh, staying safe, staying healthy, and doing the, the best they can uh, under these circumstances. In terms of my background, I was born and raised on Oahu. I reside in Pauoa with my wife of 24 years, Bonnie, who's a chief financial officer, and we have a college-age son, Chris, who is... Uh, uh, in the middle of his college career. He goes to school on, in California, but he's taking the semester off uh, to help my campaign and to hope uh, in the hopes that his college opens up again in the spring and, and resumes classes on campus uh, uh, for the foreseeable future. So uh, in terms of my background, I'm an attorney by trade. Uh, and as Annalisa mentioned, um, I'm known in large part for my background and tenure at the Hawaii High School Athletic Association. It was at that job that transformed me. It got me heavily involved and interested in public service. It's one of the main reasons I'm running for mayor today. And that's because I had the opportunity to visit every community across the state, uh, including every community on Oahu. I got to visit all 95 public and private high schools across the state. And so I got to know communities very, very well. I got to meet many working class families. I got to meet thousands of student athletes. And what I quickly learned was that many working class families across Oahu were struggling to make ends meet. Uh, that was 20 years ago. Uh, and the case is unchanged today. And in fact, might be even worse, especially because of COVID-19. It's those people that I'm fighting for, I'm working hard for, and it's those people who I wanna serve as mayor, especially our younger generations. We owe it to that younger generation to fight for them and do whatever we can so that they too can raise a family and afford to live here, uh, just like many of us have enjoyed the opportunity to do so. 
in terms of uh, the priorities as mayor, uh, COVID-19 will likely still be a big crisis for all of us. And so I will help lead our city and our communities out of the COVID-19 crisis. 30 seconds. Uh, we need to build more affordable housing. We need, we need to reduce homelessness and we need to enact a climate action plan. My entire career has been based on working with communities, listening, learning, bringing people together to solve the many complex problems facing Oahu. I'll continue to do that as your mayor and I'll continue to fight for all of you and I look forward to the opportunity to serve our island. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Amamiya. Let's turn it now to Mr. Blanjardi. Thank you, Annalisa. Um, let me first of all just include a couple of things that you didn't mention. I'm, I am married, my wife's name is Karen. I have three children, all grown, uh, all of whom were born here, partially raised here. And I uh, have my youngest son still with me. In fact, he's with me today. And I also wanna say how pleased I am to be part of this forum with the chamber. You mentioned in the introduction that I was chair of the Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii. And I'm really proud of that tenure there, but I also have been very involved with the chamber and all of its activities for many years. Uh, and so just a lot of related activities and I really welcome this opportunity to speak to this group especially. So when I made my decision last year to run for mayor, it was actually a little bit before Christmas. It really was a referendum on leadership. As I was looking at the marketplace through the lens of my newsroom and also my own community outreach as somebody who's lived here and really tried to lead a very active life outside of my job. But Hawaii News now afforded me a really good understanding of a lot of the major issues on a daily basis, if you will, and the things that we did. So as I looked at things that I thought were gonna be probably the most challenging and really what motivated me initially with homelessness, certainly the rail and all the uncertainty surrounding that, affordable housing had been something we've been talking through and dealing with from the standpoint of not only trying to avoid homelessness, but quite honestly, the lack of affordable housing and other issues like infrastructure, which is a big issue, and elder, elder, elder care, our, you know, we have an aging population. Those were the classic talking points. So we announced in January and in February, I, mean, I retired in January and February, we announced in, in March, we were shut down with COVID. And suddenly over a period of time now, all these months, the economic recovery of Hawaii, of Oahu especially, uh, is facing all of us. And so I would tell you that the the daunting task, if you will, of balancing public health and safety and an economic recovery is a big order. It's a very big order. And we've seen how difficult it is now that we're already many in our eighth month of this. So the challenges are many in front of us. Uh, for me, this is going to be absolutely the biggest challenge of a lifetime. I want to stay true to my priorities. They're there. They're all, they've been amplified by COVID, but everything that we can possibly do right now on a going forward basis is going to have to be to mitigate the challenges and the suffering that we're seeing right now with our residents and quite honestly our businesses and everything else in between. So um, I feel like my life's work, especially all the years I spent here in Hawaii, as you said, since 1965, the things I've done throughout my broadcast career and even coaching has been in service to Hawaii. And so you now step up to this now in this challenge, um, really, um, really looking forward to making a difference as our next mayor. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Mr. Blanchardi. Now it's time for our question and answer portion. Each question will be addressed to both candidates who will each have two minutes to respond. And candidates, you will be again alerted when 30 seconds are left. There will be no rebuttals. And we'll start the first question with Mr. Blanchardi. And then after that, we will alternate the order of responses. And of course, you both touched on this and it's the biggest issue facing us now, the coronavirus. And uh, both of you know that I am a journalist and part of my job is to talk to all facets of the population about their, their reaction to how our response has been. The state and the city's handling has received so much criticism. Many citizens are uh, categorizing it as a failure of leadership in particular with stay-at-home orders and our restrictions and how long this has been drawn out, especially for our businesses. Our, our chambers know this very well. So do you agree with that sentiment? What were the strengths that you see or any weaknesses and what would you have done differently? Well, that's a good question. So let me just state first that for the vast majority of us, this pandemic is unprecedented in our lifetimes and have largely resisted criticizing our elected and appointed officials for the response to COVID-19. Now, I think we all benefit from the luxury of hindsight and the information we've learned along the way. So with that in mind, I offer my comments as constructive criticism, acknowledging that it's much easier to look back than actually having to react to a crisis. Uh, from a strength standpoint, I think both the city and state were quick to exercise their authority on the law to declare an emergency or disaster in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. And both the city and state took immediate steps to put the public health welfare and safety of the residents of the city and state first. And also both the city and state recognize that even in an emergency and crisis environment, not everyone needed to be treated exactly the same. And also both the city and state did their best to exempt certain professions and activities, most commonly referred to as essential businesses, operations and government functions, so that the public could continue to expect continuity of core services, government operations and essential activities. So in essence, to the extent possible within a pandemic, they kept our economy operating as safely as possible. So we did not have a full shutdown of our government, infrastructure and services, and I commend them for that. But with respect to what could have been done better, we all know now that we should have been testing and contact tracing more robustly earlier in the pandemic. We know now that better coordination between the state and the county would have avoided some of the confusion that resulted from inconsistent orders and proclamations. And we know now that there's always an opportunity to communicate better and more fully via many different avenues. So we also know that it's important to listen to our communities and get the relief out as soon as possible. We've been too conservative, too bureaucratic, and too slow in meeting the needs of our residents and businesses. We must can and actually do better week by week to get our CARES Act money out. So that's what I'll be looking at going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Now to Mr. Amamiya, what is your response to that question? Are you there? I think you have to unmute yourself. Sorry about that. Um, That's okay, go ahead. All right, so as others have mentioned, this is an unprecedented situation. So there was really no roadmap for the state or city as to how to handle uh, the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now with respect to the first stay at home order, I think that government did okay. But since that time, uh, probably not so good. And there are a lot of things in hindsight that could have and should have been, uh, been done better. First, uh, much more testing, contact tracing, and isolation and quarantining 
as necessary. Uh, it was clear that uh, we weren't prepared for you know the surge in in COVID-19 cases. We let our guard down, and you know that's government's job to make sure that we keep the cases down. And that was one of the missteps or failures of government early on. Uh, there also could have been better communication. Uh, by both the state and the city and between the state and the city. I think a lot of us were confused about what we could and couldn't do. Uh, we were confused about how long more uh, we were gonna be in this stay-at-home order status. Uh, it's very difficult for businesses and restaurants to prepare uh, without much notice. Uh, you can't just open a restaurant in, with 24 hours notice. You cannot shut down a restaurant with just 24 hours notice. There's inventory that you need to get rid of. There's inventory you need to purchase if you're gonna reopen your restaurant. You need to make sure you have a workforce. So uh, that could have been done better as well. I also would have relied much more on, on data and science seconds. and the advice of medical uh, experts on how to handle the pandemic and, and give us uh, much more structure and guidelines uh, as to when we can come out of the latest stay at home order. I would have distributed the CARES Act money much faster to families and small businesses. And I would have been much more transparent uh, with uh, uh, you know, the, the general public, because again, they were very confused. And last thing, I wouldn't have limited uh, one person to going to parks and beaches. I would have let families do that. Thank, right. you. Thank you, Mr. Amamiya, for that. And, you know, going off of that, the economy, um, now that we have so many people out of work, what can you do to help stimulate the economy? You've both spoken about diversification. Which industries in particular can you expand on? Would you focus on to revive the economy? And what new ideas would you offer that's different from previous administrations? Mr. Amamiya. Well, you know, tourism is our lifeblood. I mean, if it wasn't clear before COVID-19, it's crystal clear now. And so we need to do whatever we can to uh, bring back tourism uh, to our islands. Now, of course, we need to make sure that our communities uh, stay safe as much as possible from the spread of COVID-19. We need to have rigorous testing and, and guidelines to make sure that the tourists don't bring uh, more COVID-19 cases to Oahu and infect our residents and and other, and other tourists alike. Uh, but it's clear that tourism is important to us. Now, whether we return to 10 million tourists a year uh, that have been coming to our entire state, probably not. Uh, that's another discussion for another time as to how many more tourists we want. But we clearly need to bring back tourists. Uh, there are people who are directly impacted by the tourism industry, whether it's the airlines, tour companies, hotels, rental companies, but many other people indirectly related, whether it's our restaurants outside of Waikiki, our retail shops outside of Waikiki, uh, and, and many, many more. So it's clear we need to try to get tourism kick-started and, and up and running uh, in order to revive our economy. In terms of diversifying our economy, we've talked about it for years and years, if not decades. Uh, this is a time we finally need to do that and, and just bring the political will and leadership to Honolulu Hale to diversify our economy. Let's focus on agriculture, aquaculture, and renewable energy for starters. Three strong industries that will help uh, uh, lower our risk whenever there's another economic downturn with respect to tourism. Um, it'll help stabilize our economy. It'll improve our food security. Uh, and there's just so many other reasons why those uh, three areas in particular we should be focusing on. Thank you.
Okay, thanks, Ms. Ramamia. Mr. Blanjardi, your answer to that. Yeah. Lisa, I'm going to approach it a little bit different, but I do want to say that tourism is absolutely essential. It's been our economic engine for a long time. But as I've looked at this and how I would approach the job, I think first and foremost, we need to assist our businesses, our unemployed, and our local residents. We also need to get federal, state, and county funds out immediately. And we continue to need to assess how government is meeting the needs of this business community and adjust accordingly. I've been really concerned about that because of the small businesses being the backbone and having been deemed non-essential and how they've been impacted. So I think we need to work more closely with the business community. Don't assume government knows what is best for the private sector. In fact, I think in many cases they've proven they haven't. So if possible, I think I want to go out and get expert advice. I want to call on local, national, or international experts, perhaps, who have successfully, successfully reopened economies in, ch in challenging times. I think we need that kind of expertise. It's been clear to me that we were lacking that. So I also think we need to work more closely with our universities on realistic opportunities to diversify. There are some real good opportunities out there for us to be able to do that. I think first and foremost, we also need to offer job assistance, retooling and retraining programs to help our workforce get back to work as quickly as possible. I was really bothered by Sunday's headlines about the exodus of people leaving this state and the projections. I've been talking about it for weeks now that the University of Hawaii projected we could lose 25,000 people because of no work. That is so disruptive to our local economy. And the last thing I think I would like to say is, I mean, I want to keep my ears to the ground. I've really wondered whether or not they have had a possible I want to have an open door policy and as mayor, I always want to be willing to learn and adjust. You know, and if we see best practices working somewhere else, they'd be willing to adopt them. You know, all for the greater good of our people and our businesses. And I think that that's the kind of practical application I want to bring to the job. Thank you. And uh, thanks for that. I did want to go off of a good segue that you made, the exodus, the brain drain here that we're experiencing. Um, we. A lot of that is due to also the high cost of living, obviously, the lack of affordable housing, as well as the lack of job opportunities. Um, what can you say in terms of your short-term plans for tackling the homelessness problem? We expect this to get worse when there are people that can't afford affordable housing, and it's always been, or they, can't ha they don't have housing in general. So what can you say are your plans, both short-term and long-term, for creating this. Yeah, you know, Annalisa, this is something we've been talking about, all of us, and, and given a lot of thought to it. So, look, there are a lot of different plans, but I think the city has to identify, you, you know, use and acquire as necessary underutilized properties for shelters, you know, to create short-term housing and housing and safe quarters for those who need to quarantine safely for the protection of their families. I think we need to incentivize the private sector to build affordable housing. And, you know, and I look at developers as partners with the city and solving our affordable housing crisis. And I've said repeatedly that um, I've been meeting with a number of different developers and looking at a number of different projects in different places. You know, building on the Windward side and Leeward side and building in town and Kaimuki and the urban core, they have different, different agendas. I've, I've talked publicly about the fact that I've really uh, liked a, a plan and a program, Bill 7, that was approved by the city council universities and signed by the mayor that has an opportunity to deal with some of the 7,000 parcels that are identified it wouldn't require government subsidy. Then on a per unit basis, we could create maybe 30 units of affordable rentals. We have to drive down. The problem on Elisa, the problem is that we continue to construct it four to $500 a square foot. You've got to bring that construction cost down if you're going to be able to create affordable rentals, probably to more 250. And working with existing properties, 
who already have the benefit of sewers and electricity and whatever to remodel is a great, great way to do it. I think the city can also waive city fees, provide necessary infrastructure. We can incentivize, we can incentivize affordable housing in our TOD communities. You know, and we can, I think we can work towards greater height and density in the TOD zones. So also I think we can reduce and eliminate the barriers and obstacles to affordable housing. And we have to reform DPP, which is a whole other subject. So I think prioritizing affordable housing projects is absolutely a top priority in this pandemic, especially for the next mayor. Thank you. Thank you for that. And we will get to the DPP issues because that is definitely a big question for our members. Um, and to you, Mr. Amamiya, what do you think about your plans for addressing homelessness? Well, we talked earlier about the brain drain and my son is in that category. He's in college. He's almost finished. Uh, we want him to be able to come back home and, and live here and be able to have a job that can uh, pay enough to, to uh, make sure that uh, he can survive. Uh, but we're not sure. So again, as I mentioned in my introductory statements, it's people like my son and his contemporaries that I'm fighting for. Because um, right now, uh, the, the future is looking bleak. Uh, as mayor, I want to change that by building much more affordable housing. In terms of the homelessness situation, uh, there are a lot of models out there uh, that are successful, and I suggest that or we'll uh, make sure that we replicate that. I've been campaigning for about 13 months. I've met a lot of homeless advocates across Oahu. I've met a lot, I've gone to a lot of communities that have successfully addressed the homelessness situation. First, uh, on the Leeward Coast, uh, Honua Owayanai, uh, Anti-Twinkle Borges community is a great example of how you can address homelessness with a community-based approach. Uh, before I started my campaign for mayor, I was very involved in the Kahawiki Village Project uh, in the Kehi Lagoon area. That's a perfect example of a public-private partnership involving the state, the city, nonprofit groups, and the private sector where 600 people who were uh, previously homeless uh, now are under roof, uh, including 300 children. 144 units were built in fairly short order. We need to do more of those Kahawiki village type projects. In terms of the housing in the long term, I was the first and only candidate to, pre to provide a comprehensive housing for all plan. It seeks to drastically address the 22,000 unit shortage of housing here on Oahu through three areas. Focus on housing for Oahu residents and not out-of-state residents. Eliminate the factors and increase the cost of housing like illegal vacation rentals. And finally, the city can provide inducements to encourage private development in the urban core. Thank you. All right, thank you for that, Mr. Mamiya. Now, this is, again, a good segue. You both talked about incentivizing developers for affordable housing. That's the biggest challenge. Um, part of the discouraging factor, though, is the planning and permitting process. And as you both have said, construction remains strong, uh, but there's many projects that are still waiting for permits. What can you do to eliminate this bottleneck and improve the process to ensure these projects get completed on time? Well, this is yet another issue that's been existing for, it seems, decades. And uh, we finally need to get it done. Um, everyone knows the problems. Everyone has solutions. In fact, there was an audit, a comprehensive audit that was released, a report uh, earlier this year in January that details all the issues in DPP and how to solve it. So what does it take? It's going to require political will. It's going to require bold, dynamic, new leadership, which I will bring to Honolulu Hale 
in several aspects, including fixing DPP. DPP has great people uh, who are trying their best, but we need to help them. First of all, we need to provide more personnel. Uh, they're understaffed. We need to provide more people to help process the permits so that they can get out there and be approved much quicker so can, so can co construction uh, can proceed on the various projects waiting for their permits. Uh, secondly, technology is extremely uh, grossly outdated uh, at DPP. Everyone will tell you that. Uh, let's upgrade the technology so that, again, we can process the permits much faster. Uh, last, uh, the, the DPP uh, needs to process permits faster. It needs to approve the permits faster. Uh, let's not get bogged down in every single technical detail. Let's streamline the process, make it more efficient, and let's focus more on the tail end of the project. Uh, and that's inspection and enforcement. Let's increase the building inspectors and others uh, who are tasked with making sure that the permit uh, is being complied with and that the application and the applicants are following the rules, but let's not bog down the construction. Let's address the uh, uh, tail end uh, and enforce as necessary. Most permit applications are sound and, and, and uh, credible, uh, so let's not bog them down for the very few that are not in compliance. Thank you. Right, thank you. And Mr. Blanjardi, to you, what, you know, as he's mentioned, so many, so much of this has been discussed in the past with previous administrations. What would you bring to really bring bold change to DPP? Well, you know, um, we've had the benefit, uh, you know, of the city audit, which really, if you look at the findings that were presented to the mayor on January 3rd, they're pretty extensive. And, and Keith has just outlined some of them. But you know, I would say that despite the fact that the construction business has been able to um, remain relatively strong uh, through the, this pandemic, we absolutely need the construction sector going forward and be able to facilitate a lot more building. So what is right in front of us is that we need to completely reform DPP. And I will tell you, it's gonna be a top priority, but it's not gonna get fixed in the first 100 days. It's gonna be a real challenge for us, but we can use the city January audit, 20 to 2020 audit as a roadmap for working with it to make our system for the taxpayers, business community and our economy work. But you know, we're gonna start with leadership we have to point a director with a can-do attitude who has a personality to turn the department around from the inside out. I've been told by all kinds of people that, you know, this is the holy grail. It's been talked about. It's never been done. We can talk about political will. This is really going to be a matter of, of execution, but it's going to start with leadership. I also believe there are many good people in the DPP, but they need a change agent to lead them to collective solutions. I've always believed that so much is tied to, to a leadership of a department. Now, I know that they've been under-resourced. All the findings are right there. We need to modernize it. We need more people. We do allow them to even enforce the things that they have to enforce along with the building and permitting process and whether or not that's too much for one department. You know, as, it, as it is, DPP was responsible for monitoring illegal vacation rentals and monitoring you know, monster homes and really did not do a real good job of it. And in part, I believe, because they lacked the resources they needed to accomplish that mission. So we're going to change in our budget where our priorities are and DPP and fixing DPP will be a major priority for me walking in first day. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mr. Blanchardi, for that. Now it's segue again to a big construction project that many have called a failure on behalf of the city. Um, of course, we're talking about rail and you both have said you both support it. 
what will you do to ensure that it is funded, especially now with how difficult it is during the pandemic? How do you ensure it will be completed? I guess I'm up first. Yeah, Annalisa. Is that, Annalisa, is that me? I think so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I just want to be clear. Uh, look, I think the events of the last two weeks involving Hart and the mayor speak for themselves. We've been talking about rail since we've been on the campaign trail. I mentioned it was one of the top issues when I came in and announced I was going to run for mayor and talking about transparency, accountability, and fiscal management. Uh, and then we got into a situation with the pandemic that really impacted us financially and began raising questions about it. But look at where we are right now and look what the situation is and what they've projected. So I think we need to get the details so we can make the right decisions. I don't know if we're going to use a P3 or, or an alternative procurement strategy. We're going to have to be able to determine that. But I can tell you right now, as an outsider, we don't have access to that kind of information. But we do need to get a firm handle on the utility in the Dillingham Carter and the financial impact of that project budget. Look at the delays of that. And that's not going to be an easy task to do. And that is major. Nobody's talked much about the engineering challenges here, but the engineering challenges are significant. So the financial impact of COVID-19 on the GET and TAT keeps moving up. At one point, it was projected at 400. And I heard our mayor say the other day, it could be as much as 600. But we all know the tourism is not going to come rushing back. So there's going to be an impact on that on a going forward basis. So we need to know more about the project status. And we, I think, look, I, I, I want to see what the FTA communications have been in anticipation of meeting with the FTA. I think as mayor, I'm not going to pass the buck on rail. Okay, the city deserves a functional rail system and nothing less. And our goal is to get to Almawana. But if we cannot financially, we should settle for nothing less than a functional rail system that serves the transit community and our taxpayers. So I want to just say right now, we cannot settle for a system that will never work, much less serve our people. So we absolutely need to get more federal funds released and fight for even more federal money because I think it's evident to everybody based on what's just happened, there's not enough money there and we're gonna need more money. And so my, my real question is what we can do, what we have to do to establish trust to get the release of the $744 million the federal government's been holding. And so we can get even more money on top of that. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Mr. Bonjardi. Mr. Amamiya, your take on rail and how to fund it. Well, you know, like a lot of us, I've been very frustrated with rail from the beginning, from the planning stages uh, up, up to the present. I've been, you know, exasperated and, and even upset. Uh, it's been quite disastrous. And just when you think it can't get worse, it does. Uh, with last week's announcement by the city that they're going to drop out of the P3 process and uh, they were going to fire and unfire the CEO and his status is uncertain. But having said all that, I've been consistent from the beginning of my campaign that we need to complete rail at Alamoana for many different reasons. First, any great city has multiple modes of transportation, multiple effective modes of transportation. Rail will provide transportation equity for our residents from West Oahu in, who need to go into town for work or study uh, or any other reason. Uh, they need a viable option. Uh, Pre-COVID-19, traffic was horrendous. Uh, and uh, people from West Oahu had to spend hours in their cars or in a bus uh, in order to get to and from work or school. That's unacceptable. We also can't afford to return the $800 million that have already been provided uh, to the city to complete the rail project to Ala Moana. If we complete rail or choose to not complete rail at Ala Moana, uh, there's a good chance we'll have to return that $800 million. There's also a good chance we'll need a new environmental impact statement 
if we don't complete rail all the way to Ala Moana as planned. 30 seconds. Uh, we also need the $744 million in federal subsidies that are promised to us by the federal government if we complete rail to Ala Moana. Uh, the other important part of rail is that uh, transit-oriented development is a key component, not only to the rail project, but for the economic success of our city. It'll provide thousands of more housing units. It'll provide much more livable, walkable portions of Oahu that we sorely need. It'll create a much more vibrant city and it'll give uh, a fighting chance for our younger families in particular to be able to stay here and afford to live here. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that, Mr. Amamiya, because um, I personally have lived in New York and Singapore that have excellent rail systems and also LA, which Absolutely. had a very struggling time building their rail system. So you did mention the TODs, and that is a key part of this, um, you know, in terms of using those uh, zoning um, rules to increase the density and stimulate some development in the urban core, which we desperately need. So what are your thoughts about rezoning um, certain plots there? You mentioned, you addressed it briefly, but also workforce housing and also perhaps changing single family residential zoning to allow for more density? So, you know, uh, to answer your question, we need to look at every and all options to increase our housing inventory here on Oahu. Uh, the amount to meet demand is significant. As I mentioned earlier, it's about 22,000 units. So uh, to follow up on my transit-oriented development answer in the last question, uh, you know, we need to move forward on that. As you mentioned, there are cities that have incredible rail systems and very successful transit-oriented development projects like uh, Japan in the Tokyo region, uh, like Singapore, like Vancouver. And it really transforms the quality of life of the city for residents and others alike. And so uh, I'm very excited about the transit-oriented potential, uh, especially in terms of the housing along the rail line and especially at the rail stations. Uh, in terms of other ways we can improve uh, our housing inventory, yes, of course, I'm in full support of workforce housing. Uh, it can be done very successfully. There's a huge demand for families who wanna live in town but can't afford a home, but will gladly settle for a condominium uh, to avoid the long commutes and traffic that they're currently facing uh, by living outside of urban Honolulu. Uh, in terms of whether to allow increased density in residential neighborhoods, you know, that's a much more controversial issue uh, for people. Uh, most people like it until it impacts their neighborhood uh, and, and don't want uh, that kind of development in their neighborhood. But, uh, you know, I'm open seconds. to discussing it. Uh, there, I know there's a lot of demand and interest for families who want their children and their children's children to live in their communities. And the only feasible way is to uh, allow greater density in residential neighborhoods. So uh, I would talk to the residents uh, of each community and hear what they have to say. Uh, but bottom line, let's focus on housing in the urban core for the most part, especially along the rail line via transit-oriented development. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Amamiya. Mr. Blanchardi, your take on TODs and increasing density. Yep. Look, I know we're not debating, but per the last question, the one thing I do want to say it sometimes gets skipped over is the obvious, you know, all the merits of rail and TOD and everything else about that plan, which was absolutely brilliant, absolutely essential for the future of Hawaii, has also now just been interrupted with, with a global pandemic that's really 
brought in this place to a different place. So my concerns become, you know, on the financial part of it. I think those are the right concerns to raise on our ability to find those monies, especially given the fact that we're over budget and the feds are holding back on us. But let me just answer this question here. Look, I, I believe that the zoning changes are principally, I believe, within the jurisdiction of the legislative branch, which is the city council in Honolulu County. Meaning the process to change zoning is a public process, which is also very important as the community has a right to weigh in on proposed zoning changes, which may impact the character and nature of our communities. So I really like TOD zones are perfect opportunities to build smart, equitable communities that increase height and density while providing more public spaces like complete streets and public services like senior care, child care, medical care in schools and communities where people can choose to live, work and play without the necessity of a car. Now, given Oahu's high cost of living, we simply must develop those kind of communities that allow our residents those options to live differently, to reduce their costs and overhead to remain in Hawaii and raise their families. So as far as my thoughts about changing single family residential zoning to allow for more density, once again, it depends on the community. Every community is different. Some have the infrastructure to handle increased density. Others do not, like parking, traffic, sewer, capacity. This is why we have public processes before the city council. It gives the public and the city departments the opportunity to weigh in on what works and what does not work in any given community. So just as a side note, I respect the rigorous community process that goes into developing our sustainable community plans. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mr. Manjardi. Now, a big source of funding for our city is the real property taxes. And as we know, so many property owners have not been able to keep up with those payments because their tenants have not been able to make their payments. Uh, would you consider abating real property taxes to help them? And how would you make up for that funding? Well, let me just say up front, uh, uh, we've, been, we've all been saying this is not a time we're not going to raise, we're not going to raise property taxes. I mean, we can't talk about this economic crisis and even bring that subject up. But I would be willing to consider deferring or spreading out the taxes owed over a longer period of time until the economy recovers. But you know, that's the kind of thing you have to work with the city budget and fiscal services to fully understand how this is gonna impact the city revenue. Because uh, first of all, in the, in the fiscal 22 budget, it's due to council on March 2nd, 2021. And I know from past experience that the result of reducing taxes, for the most part, when you reduce or abate in one tax class, you're really shifting the burden to other taxpayers. So, you know, for example, if we reduce taxes for the hotels, that means residential and commercial classes will share a larger burden. Or if we reduce residential taxes, it would mean small businesses or agricultural properties will share a larger burden. So this is like a tricky thing to figure out here on that deferment. So it's true because the cost of the city government historically goes up over time versus down. Our, our expenses have been going up 5% a year for a number of years in a row. So the major fixed costs of city government, which are wages, pensions and healthcare costs for city workers, as well as debt service, will all continue to rise over the coming years. But as mayor entering office in an economic recession, I fully anticipate it will be necessary to tighten our belt and cut unnecessary expenses. So in a forum last week, my opponent actually said he didn't think he'd need to cut the budget. I think not only is he wrong, but I think he's also not being honest with the public. We must cut unnecessary travel, equipment purchases, unnecessary leases, and look for ways to become more efficient in order to avoid laying off any city workers in order to spend in those areas that will stimulate the economy, increase jobs, and support our businesses. Thank you. 
Thank you. Mr. Amamiya, your thoughts on real property taxes. I know, just wanted to interject this as well. Um, there has been proposals uh, to use CARES Act money to possibly funnel some of the money to business tenants who are struggling and then passing the savings on to property owners. If, uh, I don't know if you've heard of that uh, proposal, but would you be supportive of something like that? Ways to ensure real property taxes are still being collected by the city during the pandemic? Yes, okay, well, that was gonna be part of my answer. Uh, oh, okay. So first and foremost, I oppose any increase in real property taxes at this time. We're in a pandemic, we're in an economic crisis and people are hurting as it is. So I don't wanna burden them even more with an increase in taxes. Uh, but I do want to approach ways to ease uh, homeowners and, and uh, commercial property owners' burden in other ways. First, there's the CARES Act money. $387 million has been ear earmarked for the city and county of Honolulu to provide relief to families and small businesses in particular. Further, there's the uh, household uh, relief fund, uh, about $25 million that are earmarked for families, uh, up to $2,500 a month for six months. Let's get that money out uh, into the hands of families. There's also the Small Buzz Business Recovery Fund. Uh, $60 million has already been distributed over the past several months, and $75 more million has been earmarked by the city to help small businesses in need during this pandemic. Uh, third, there's the Commercial Rent Relief Fund that is being worked on by the state of Hawaii, particularly the uh, Department of Business Economic De Development and Tourism in conjunction with the private sector. Uh, that's yet another area that can provide relief uh, to business owners in particular. So there's a lot of other ways that we can help provide relief uh, to families and small businesses uh, in particular that I wanna explore. In the long run, I wanna work on uh, transit-oriented development. That is a huge opportunity to provide billions in, of dollars in construction projects for um, uh, our construction industry, our building industry. It also provides an opportunity to build the real property tax base for the city and county of Honolulu on an annual business uh, basis uh, in, to the tune of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in increased real property tax revenue uh, based on the uh, uh, transit-oriented development construction that is in the works for the next couple of decades. Thank you. Okay. And Going off of what Mr. Banjardi said earlier about the need to budget, uh, balance the budget, especially with decreased revenues coming in, but a greater need for social services, which ones do you feel you can cut in order to ensure our budget is balanced? Well, again, you know, in, in a crisis, you know, if anything, government needs to step up its services, not retreat, uh, because that's when people need government services the most. Uh, the city budget is relatively lean. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of fat to cut. Now, obviously, I mean, let's look at ways to make the city government more efficient uh, from a cost standpoint. Uh, let's also look at ways to uh, minimize the impact on the existing employees. There's approximately 1,700 vacancies in the city uh, government workforce of 10,000 total. Uh, let's look at uh, you know, not impacting the 8,300 that are currently working for the city. I mentioned earlier the uh, ways to increase the city revenues so that we don't have to make any cuts. Um, and I also want to point out that, you know, the city is 
fairly uh, unaffected in the in in the big picture in terms of the uh, effects of the COVID-19 pa pandemic on its budget. Uh, the city, uh, as I think today, um, I mentioned uh, in a Civil Beat article that real property tax collections for the first half of this fiscal year is at 89% of uh, the expected revenue with the October and November installment payments still to come. So in terms of a tax collection standpoint, it's been pretty good. In terms of real property assessments, uh, Honolulu hit a record high last month in medium household, median uh, price of a house at $880,000. Uh, that's far more bad than good uh, because it's making uh, it even harder for working class families to afford a home and to stay in Hawaii. But on the other hand, it shows that the city real property tax revenues will likely remain stable for the foreseeable future, uh, including next fiscal year. Uh, again, we also talked about CARES Act money. There's a lot of CARES Act money that still needs to be distributed uh, to not only uh, help the city provide services, but also to provide relief to families and small businesses. And then there's the hope that there'll be even more stimulus money coming the city's way later this year or early next year. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Majority, do you agree with Mr. Amamiya about not having to cut services because there's enough revenue to over to over to uh, compensate for it? Yeah, well, let me say first and foremost, I don't intend on putting anybody out on the street, you know, and even though we are somewhat insulated, if you will, at least at present from the standpoint of the outlook of our uh, property taxes being paid, we're still going to be in an economic recession. We've got too many businesses right now that are threatened and folded. We need that rent relief program that was alluded to, uh, but there are a lot of other things right now that hang in the balance. So I think I want to approach it. I think the key in an economic recession is to make the necessary adjustments, meaning your cuts and reductions to the budget that, in, that probably at least impact the taxpayers, yet allow the city to continue to provide our residents and our businesses with core services like our sewers, our waters, our road, roads, trash, satellite city halls, et cetera. And then, and then the social services, which is really important to so many, especially the Alice population and below who rely and live day to day, week to week and month to month in Hawaii. I think that that population has even been more impacted. We can't deny that. So this is even more true in an economic recession. So as I discussed earlier, my goal as mayor would be to cut those areas that least impact the public. Things like official travel, equipment leases, purchases, non-essential overtime, I want to look for redundancies. I want to look for waste. Okay. I think, you know, not, not filling open positions. All of that has got to be part of it. But I don't think we can deny ourselves that we're going to stay in this economic recession for some time. You know, 2008, we lost 1,600 businesses. And the experts will tell you, we didn't climb out of that until 2015, seven <laughs> years later. What we're facing right now and the thousands of businesses that could potentially fold unless some dramatic stuff happens, not only just with CARES Act money, but other programs to stimulate that, you know, that's not going away. And so I'm trying to look forward as best as possible and be as optimistic as possible. I think that belt tightening in a recession is critical. And my goal is to make sure that it's done responsibly, transparently, and with the least impact to the taxpayers and the most needy among us, and especially to the employees of the city and county of Honolulu. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about hotels now. Um, hotel property taxes have increased 12% in the last five years, but the property valuations have actually increased 65%. So we know that tourism is a driver here for us on Oahu, but 
how do you intend to help those businesses manage the burden if the pricing levels go up and beyond what can be afforded by customers? But uh, Alisa, afforded by who? I didn't hear the last part of your question. Can be afforded by its customers for the hotels. Well, look, as mayor, I want to work with the tourism industry to see how the city can help them um, not only recover. Look, they've had no money since March, but come out stronger in the end. I mean, Hawaii's beauty is iconic. It's it's global. I think we've got some real potential with leisure travel versus business travel in the mainland. I think you know, there's a lot of pent up desire. So, um, as I said earlier, tourism has long been the economic engine driving Hawaii and especially Oahu's economy. So, you know, in 2019, the published figures were 216,000 jobs and almost, almost 18 billion, 17.8 revenue, which actually provided us 2 billion in taxes. And so I've been meeting with the hotel industry and that's why I told them I would meet with them at the start of my term to review their real property tax history. I made a statement in one of our forums that we did about, I would go to these multinational hotels and boom, I heard from so many of them, found myself in Waikiki, listening to these hoteliers telling me their woes and this is long ago now, not, we haven't, wasn't even closed as long as possible on what they were facing as far as being over leveraged. You know, we had 17 hotels change hands in the last couple of years at really high premiums, high multiples, and with no money coming in, that's tough. That's why so many of them are gonna remain closed. So, you know, I wanna focus on the quality versus quantity tourism model. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I want the city to do everything it can to be part of the solution. And at the end of the day, Administering, administering our city's real property tax system is about fairness, transparency, and accountability. So I, I, I think the hotel valuations are gonna go up. It means that the property is worth more and we'll see who ends up buying it. There's a real pent up international marketplace, but I, I just, you know, I think that they, they can pay their fair share, but I wanna be really careful as to how we impact our local residents. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Blanjardi. Mr. Amamiya, your take on hotel property taxes and valuations? Well, you know, they're struggling as much as, if not more than anyone else. Uh, obviously, tourism has basically come to a standstill uh, over the last seven or eight months or so. And so uh, if they need relief from real property taxes, I mean, we need to at least be open and considerate, uh, you know, as the, uh, as, as the mayor and my administration uh, we certainly don't want hotels to fail um, for a lot of reasons, especially because they're a huge source of employment for a big chunk of our population here on Oahu. Uh, I want to make sure that our residents are able to get back to work as soon as possible and, and gain a paycheck or earn a paycheck, uh, which many of them haven't been able to do for a long time. But I also want to make sure that they come back to a safe working environment as well. Uh, yes, we can't rush. Uh, uh, opening, reopening our, our hotels at the expense of the safety of our workers. I know many hotel workers who I've spoken to uh, certainly want to get back to their jobs, but they're also worried about the working conditions they'll face. So I'll make sure that the hotels have an appropriate safety plan for their workers and their guests alike. Uh, we need to make sure that there's proper PPE for our hotel workers. We need to make sure there's uh, proper safeguards around the hotels, whether it's uh, you know, uh, sufficient hand, hand sanitizing stations, whether it's plexiglass at the front desk uh, to avoid uh, transmission between the employees and the hotel guests and vice versa. So uh, again, I'm in favor of looking at relief where appropriate for these uh, hotels, but I'm also in favor of looking at 
other ways to help them, uh, whether that's providing federal stimulus money that's available uh, and uh, the city is allowed uh, to provide the hotels um, and uh, other types of measures that will help ease their burden in the short term during this crisis. Thank you. All right, thank you, Mr. Amamiya. All right, I'm gonna spice it up a little because you know, we're an hour in. So I wanted to ask a more pointed question that I often get as a journalist when they ask me about the mayoral candidates. Um, so Mr. Amamiya, you know that both you and uh, Mr. Bunjardi have been on the receiving end of negative criticism. It comes with running for office. So on your end, for, for people that uh, look at your history and your backing, from say career politicians, uh, public unions, as well as your relationship, frankly, to the city managing director, uh, uh, Mayor Caldwell's right-hand man, who is now connected to the Kealoha federal investigation. That has all raised questions for people about your ability to be impartial and perhaps root out corruption if you were to take office. So for lack of better terms, some people have been calling this a so-called good old boys network. Um, and it's not been known to be very transparent. What is your response to those critics who point all of these things at you and say that we shouldn't give you the vote? Well, you know, a lot of those allegations have already been addressed in the primary election. And in fact, the media investigated those allegations, top to bottom and, and uh, debunked them, uh, each and every one of them. And so it's an unfortunate part of politics, as you mentioned, um, that you're gonna get all kinds of accusations coming your way uh, and you just have to do the best that you can and you hope that the public understands um, that, uh, you know, that these are untrue and, and come with the territory. Now, in terms of other allegations against me, I mean, many of them were vicious. They were patently false, they affected me. They affected my wife and son and other people. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. Um, the uh, people who were behind the smear campaign spent over $100,000 against me in the primary election. Uh, it looks like they're continuing their smear against me in the general election. Um, and so, um, you know, you just do the best you can, um, show yourself in the best light and that you have uh, hope that people who support you can uh, validate that, you know, I'm an upstanding citizen. I pride myself on integrity and character and doing what's best for the community. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, I wish it didn't exist. It takes away from the merits uh, of the campaign, uh, the merits of the issues. We're in the middle of a pandemic and I wish we could just focus on the issues at hand and uh, not have to deal with, you know, the Pilau politics that have been taking place. Um, uh, you know, throughout the campaign, both in the primary and the general. And it's my hope that the voters of Oahu can see through all of this. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Mr. Amamiya. Mr. Blanjardi, for you, um, again, a chance to clear there for people who may criticize you for, say, reports of questionable real estate deals in the past, um, business alliances maybe that you might, uh, that might influence how you run the city if you were to get elected. So how can you ensure voters that you do support bold changes and you won't be beholden to those interests? Well, first of all, I just want to address one thing that Mr. Amamiya just talked about because it's really important for me. It was a promise I made the day I announced and I promised civility and respect for all candidates. And so I've not been a source, not that he suggested that was it on what's happened to him. I, I've not liked that either. I would be very upset about it if that was turned on me, but we've had nothing to do with that. 
The incident you're talking about is an FDIC related matter that happened in 1983, 37 years ago when I was the general sales manager of KGMB. We had a very prominent advertiser on television. His name was Sam Daly. He was a re retired Air Force Colonel um, and he actually specialized on housing on the windward side of Oahu. And he'd come to two of my colleagues, my local sales manager and one of my, the account executive who handled the account with this great deal on the windward side. And you know, we're all young guys working up. I was 37 at the time. And we sat down, Sam was a highly regarded guy, well-known, well-established. And basically we got scammed. He brought a bank president to town, this guy named um, William Lamaster from Indian Spring State Bank, told us this was a great deal. And I don't know if either one of you can remember what real estate was like in the 80s, but with the protocol such, it seemed like, okay, we're finally getting invited to the dance. And it involved us signing a promissory note of which I maintained a liability with the FDIC. But as it turns out, these guys were part of a really big, a big racketeering deal, which is about RICO. It was way beyond anything and involved in a bank fraud. So what happened was we got scammed. I got conned. I ended, up be, I ended up becoming, you know, a witness for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. I spent two weeks back in, in Kansas putting these guys in jail. I had a civil civil problem um, with the FDIC on that promissory note. They were unforgiving on that. We're still held responsible, even though we got scammed. Bill McCorriston, a very prominent lawyer, was my lawyer of record at the time. And so I was forced into filing a chapter seven. But since that time, I've been fully vetted in everything I've ever done. And I've been on bank boards. I've held broadcast licenses. I've been president of national companies. None of that has ever come up. The fact that this came up in this campaign was amazing to me. So my integrity and my life's work is on the line here and nobody has to doubt that or question it over something that happened 37 years ago in which I was the victim. All right, thank you for clearing that up for us, uh, Mr. Benjardi. Now, you, we talk about, you talked about fraud and you also being a victim of fraud and a lot of the crime that we are seeing rising amongst our communities across all neighborhoods. And let's shift our focus now to crime solving and the police department having the worst rate right now. How do you address that as well as the underlying social issues that are causing crime to rise right now? Well, look, first of all, full disclosure, I, I was endorsed by Shopo. And so, you know, I'm, I've been very supportive of the police department. And just to give some context here before we get into the specifics of your question. A couple of things that come up. One was the fact that uh, right after, within a month, I got the police endorsement, you know, George, the George Floyd incident happened. And suddenly we're hearing terms like defunding the police, Black Lives Matter, in ways we had not. We're seeing on television and elsewhere, you know, rioting and looting and just unbelievable in, in major cities. Uh, all the while here, not having those racial tensions, but still, still, People really caught up in it. In fact, I was amazed when I saw the, um, the demonstration. I actually stood in the corner of Ward and Kapiolani that day and watched 10,000 people walk by me. It was very civil, but I, you could tell how it captured the minds of everybody. So, look, feeling safe is really important. And I am a strong proponent of our first responders and especially our police department. You know this as a journalist. Family safe, primary reason, and what people want to feel. It's a real primal instinct. Right now, we are more than 100 police officers shy. We, we have a deficit. We have probably 315 open positions. They can sustain the city at 200. We need that. To the report that you're talking about that just came out, I talked with Susan Ballard. I talked 
to Malcolm Luther, the head of Shopo. We're short on detectives as well, which has a complication. Some 50 positions, 50, 50 detectives. Consequently, some of the crimes that get committed don't get investigated. There's a reality there. Now, there's also a little bit of manipulation how those statistics were put out. But that said, we need to be fully supportive of our police department. And I'm, I'm somebody also that, you know, along with the George Floyd incident, Senate Bill 85 came out about transparency. And as a broadcaster and somebody involved in journalism, I stood my ground, even though they didn't want to hear that because I've been very supportive of more transparency, which had a lot to do with the takedown of Chief Louis K. Aloha. So look, I want to support our police department. I want people in Hawaii to, or on Oahu, our island, to feel very safe. And this is a real challenge going forward because of the pent up situation right now, people not having money, not having food, and the desperation of what that could lead to. These are perilous times and we've got to be very careful. More than anything, we have to support our police department. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Amamiya, your take on the police department and social issues underlying crime. Oh, you're unmuted. That's okay. I have to get used to it myself. <laughs> All right. Can I hear yeah. you now? Go ahead. Oh, well, thank you again for the question, but I just want to go back to the prior question and thank you for asking that to clear the air and the misconceptions. You know, my campaign from the start has been a community-based campaign. Uh, the foundation of my campaign was mainly through my tenure running high school sports across Oahu and the rest of the state. I have many young families uh, who have never been involved in campaigns helping my campaign, whether you see it in sign waving or canvassing. Uh, there's a lot of energy and excitement and so it's clearly not an old boy network based campaign in terms of police and the concerns about crime in our communities you know COVID-19 is stressful for everyone uh, times are tough economically and otherwise uh, there's a rise in domestic violence in particular and that greatly concerns me I used to serve uh, on the domestic violence action center as a board member so I know firsthand uh, the crisis of domestic violence across Oahu and the fact that it's growing in numbers because of COVID-19. What I have advocated from the beginning throughout my campaign of how we can help the police department is increase community partnerships. There are many social service agencies that are uh, trained and experts in how to handle domestic violence, how to handle homelessness, uh, and our police officers are, are stretched thin. I mean, they are required to do things that they haven't had to in the past. Um, their jobs are more dangerous. Uh, the jobs are more complicated. So I'm advocating much more community partnerships uh, with the homeless communities and the uh, domestic violence social service agencies in particular. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that. Mr. Ramirez, uh, let's uh, switch to sports, uh, both of you have a very strong background in sports, of course. Um, we've seen, of course, the state really have more of the direct impact here in Hawaii with Aloha Stadium, UH, DOE. But what role does the city play in terms of promoting sports here in Honolulu from an economic perspective? Mr. Armania. Yes, well, actually the city has a huge role in, in sports and economic development and its potential is largely untapped. Uh, the city has some of the best sports facilities here on Oahu, whether it's Waipahu Peninsula Soccer Park with 20-something soccer fields, including a soccer stadium, whether it's Central Oahu Re Regional Park with premier tennis courts, a premier uh, swimming and diving facility, multiple softball fields, multiple baseball fields, 
multiple soccer and football fields. Uh, so there is a huge opportunity to host even more national tournaments. It'll greatly increase our revenue. My son played baseball uh, uh, from an early age all the way through high school. We've been to mainland tournaments uh, uh, across the country and the economic boon is substantial. So let's market uh, Oahu better. Let's uh, promote our city facilities. Um, there have been some national tournaments, including with AYSO or the American Youth Soccer Organization that has held you know, uh, tournaments at YPO uh, with hundreds of teams. And the economic benefit to Oahu and its hotel industry in particular and visitor industry is enormous. So as mayor, I will continue to promote those types of uh, tournaments and activities. I'll promote the greater partnerships with uh, the private sector and others to utilize our city facilities uh, because they are heavily used and uh, they're a great source of uh, community benefit and economic benefit. Um, the other areas I would like to help the city uh, or utilize city facilities to help the public is increase uh, participation, uh, whether it's youth sports, but even our seniors. Uh, I wanna get our seniors much more involved in our communities. They already do. I've been to several softball games at Central Oahu Regional Park uh, with the Makuli Leagues. They're successful, they're thriving, um, and we just need to do more. Um, I think some of you may know that pickleball is an emerging sport, especially with seniors. It's hugely popular. So as mayor, I wanna expand the reach and opportunities for more recreational and sports activities for our citizens on Oahu. Thank you. Just a quick follow-up and I'll add time to uh, Rick's time as well for this because I wanted to get your take, you know, under our lockdown right now, our, our tier system, youth sports aren't allowed, outdoor sports. And would you change this if you were elected? Because at this point, it doesn't look like it'll, it's for tier four right now. Um, and there's been outcry saying that that needs to be moved up sooner. Would you move it if you were elected? Obviously, I'd consult with you know, medical professionals and, and base the decision uh, in large part on science and data, but 100% absolutely yes to your question. Uh, there are ways, um, in fact, I've been working with uh, youth organizations and leagues on, on some proposals to allow youth sports to resume. Uh, it's such an important uh, part of our communities. It's important for our young people to be able to go out there and exercise and, uh, you know, uh, play and compete with their friends. It's a great opportunity for parents to watch their children grow and develop. Again, I was a parent of an athlete. And so uh, I, I truly think there are ways to uh, have youth sports continue in under certain guidelines, especially the outdoor sports. Um, if you properly space people and, and sports that don't involve, you know, actual physical contact, you know, like football, for example, uh, baseball, softball, and some of the other sports um, or individual sports, you know, we certainly need to provide more opportunities uh, because it's just tough uh, under these circumstances to confine everybody in their homes. And I really think we can find common middle ground to allow you sports to resume. All right, thank you for that. Okay, so Mr. Blanjardi, for you, the sports issue, how can we uh, promote it more from an economic perspective as well as maybe opening up youth sports? You know, I, I, tell you, I could talk about this subject for a long time. It's actually one of the things that I wanna take my mind out of uh, everything that we're mired in right now with COVID and all the other impacts from it. Um, the potential of this is great. I and mean, we even started a year ago 
just with a preseason NFL game here, uh, you know, with, 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 and, and, and how quickly people responded. But I, I just think that Hawaii, as I said earlier, uh, both within our state, and look, I, with my experience or background, sports has been a big part of being in broadcast. So, but uh, local sports has been especially good and it has especially uh, an especial um, appeal, if you will. I mean, we, we saw that back, I actually saw that in the 70s when I was working at KGMB and when the Wahine went 79 with the Carbondale to play for a national championship. You know, we saw the interest in that. We were do, already doing, you know, uh, live football games, but only, only two a season in those days. We translated all that into 1984 and what we built at the old KGNL and we're doing 100 sporting events a year because we understood the appeal of our local sports from the northern tip of Kauai to the southern tip of Hawaii Island. And that's never really waned, I think, in local sports. Uh, so I, I, I think there's that element. But I think we also have an exportable product. I mean, one of the things that we know that we, we have well-known sports leaders here in Hawaii in golf, football, baseball, serving, you know, surfing, um, softball, tennis. I and mean, we, we skateboarding, windsurfing. I mean, we have... People here have relationships and credibility all over the mainland and really, quite honestly, the rest of the world. And I think we need to leverage those relationships. You know, I, I, I know the appeal of things. We, we put a Hokulea homecoming, which is not a sport per se, on Facebook Live and had over 2 million people watch that event. Hawaii's appeal, I said earlier about our, our, as, as a tourist destination, is global. It's iconic. There are so many things that are magical. And so from that standpoint, I think we can start to leverage those relationships and, and really try to make some of this happen. Um, I, think, I think we've got some real potential here. We have to stay open to the possibilities. We have to be willing to extend ourselves that way. And I think I can put together a group of people, maybe as opposed to an individual, more of an ohana of people who could make things happen. I know I've sat in a number of meetings on the building of the new stadium and other kinds of projects that are out there. I think the future is bright ahead because with respect to sports, now we can market ourselves not only as a destination, but a global destination and a global brand. I mean, I'm really excited about looking at those, all the talk we've had of late and diversifying our economy and different revenue opportunities. I think this is a real winner and I want to really work with, you know, with our tourism association and everybody else involved in this and turning this into a reality. You know, for all that we have going here, we don't even have a legitimate sports authority, which we should have. So I could talk about this for a long time. I just think it's a great upside for us. And as mayor, I'll explore it with everything I have to capitalize on it. That's been my lifetime. And I'm really, I'm really proud of that work. So thank you. And opening, just your take quick, real quick about opening for um, youth sports sooner yeah. than later. Well, I think, you know, we have, we have to pay attention to what the, what the medical profession says and um, science and data and all of that. But I, I'm, I'm all for getting on with our lives and, and, and and be able to do this and, and try to promote it in a safe way. But I think we've been pent up for a long time and we're not gonna even be in office to make that decision for three more months. And I would like to think that three more months from now, whether it's even some of the testing and other things that we could possibly do, you know, as we watch and get ready maybe for University of Hawaii to start its football season and other things that maybe things will lighten up. But I'm all for, you know, let's get on with our lives again. I think everybody's feeling that to do it safely. I want to encourage that kind of activity, especially the stuff that's out in the open. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, we are at that time. And I, I don't know about our viewers here, but I definitely learned a lot about all the different stances you all have 
um, on the issues. Thank you so much to our two candidates for your thoughtful answers. I know our members appreciate it. Uh, now we will give you each five minutes to really just make your final case for people's vote because ballots are out. They're going to be voting soon. So um, Mr. Amamiya, let's go ahead and get your closing remarks first. Well, Annalisa, I want to thank you again and the rest of the four chambers for this opportunity to speak before all of you today. Uh, this is obviously a pivotal election uh, for so many reasons, including COVID-19 and the many different challenges our city was facing even before COVID-19, whether it's the lack of affordable housing, homelessness, or even the climate change issues that are looming uh, down the road or in fact facing us in many, uh, many respects. Uh, I have a track record of bringing people together and solving problems. I understand every community on Oahu. My career has been dedicated to public service. Uh, I'm committed to doing whatever I can to make Oahu better and stronger than ever. I truly believe that if we all work together like we have done in the past with crises in the past, we can and will get out of this uh, economic challenge. Thank you again for the opportunity. I humbly ask everyone for their support and their vote on November 3rd or, or sooner, as you mentioned, uh, as some people already have their ballot. So uh, thank you again, aloha and mahalo. Mahalo. Mr. Blanchard, your closing remarks. Well, I must admit five minutes to talk about yourself is a long time. <laughs> okay, and, and I, I, I'm not gonna do that, but I also wanna start off by thanking the chambers. Uh, for your coming together and giving us both an opportunity to speak with you. It is a pivotal year. It's a very important election. I don't think there's been an, a mayor in our history, despite the fact that historically we've had, you know, our country's had challenging times, but anybody walking into Honolulu Holly facing what we'll be facing. So I would tell you, I believe in my heart, this is more a question of what is needed. I, my handlers, but people around me always say I'm way too modest, but I've been in, in senior management, senior leadership positions. I've had every title from president to CEO. I purposely kept my title down to general manager at Hawaii News Now, but I can tell you when you're in the senior position, when you're in that lead position, it is very different than even being a number two. You know, the accountability that you hold to your stockholders, your shareholders, the, your owners, to your employees. And in my case, you know, 43 years in broadcast, 31 spent here to the community, while putting other people first. That is, you know, I, I have just been doing that my whole life. And as you said in the opening today, briefly, even my own extension in the work that I chose to do in the community, be it for youth or other services like, like the Food Bank of Hawaii, always been a privilege for me. So I've been working really hard for more than 50 years. Most of my life has been here. I um, never thought I would be in politics. I said that in the beginning, this was a decision we made less than a year ago. Uh, I think that my training and broadcast and my experiences and what it afforded me actually proves to be a very, a very good um, career, if you will, from the standpoint of what I've been exposed to in the way of issues and the way of what's needed. But I wanna just bring it back home to, to this, is a, this is a referendum on leadership. And that was the thing that inspired me. So we're gonna need somebody who is perceived as a leader, who is trustworthy, who is decisive, you know, who will operate 
and the public good. And I've been, you know this in journalism, the holy grail and the business that we've been in is about trust. That's everything that you try to accomplish and for those seminal moments. So I understand what it means to be trustworthy. I understand what it means to be transparent. I understand what it means to communicate. I understand what it means to hire people and to fire people. I understand fiscal responsibility. I've lived with budgets of all kinds in all settings. I was president of two national broadcast companies. You know, when I was the president of Telemundo, I was based in Los Angeles and I lived on airplanes for 45 weeks a year for three years until we built that city. And I was in due, built that company and I was in due diligence with companies like General Electric that owned NBC, Viacom that owned CBS, AOL, Time Warner, and Disney that owned ABC. And we ended up selling a company that we built in three years through a lot of hard work for a lot of money, 2.7 billion before I came home in 2002. But I'd been in those settings and it's so hard to verbalize the seasoning one gets, but the experience has been invaluable. And since I've been home for the last 18 years and the challenges that I've taken on, initially to run KHUN and KGMB, two stations that were failing miserably, to turn those stations around, and then to go through a difficult economy in 2008, and out of a broken economy, build a 21st century multimedia company in Hawaii News Now, that's highly regarded nationally at every level, and certainly locally. My body of work has been out there for everybody. And the one thing that I can't do, is I can't ask anybody who just spent 10 years with me, day and night working at what we just did, to talk on my behalf because they're precluded given the nature of our roles. And so, you know, I, I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of what I've done. You know, I think if you talk to anybody privately, they'll tell you who I am as a leader, how much I care, the heart that I lead with, the commitment that I lead with. So this is all about that. And that's why I decided to apply it, stepping in to this mayor's job. So I'm gonna bring a life's work, a passion for Hawaii to a place that's loved me back ever since I first arrived in 1965. That's what I'm about right now. This is about what? This is a candidate who's been seasoned under fire in crises. I've always been the person who was hired to replace somebody who they fired. Okay, I've always been that turnaround person with the only exception being when I went to work at CBS in New York at the network for a couple of years. I'm that person and I'm ready for this challenge. I thank you for the opportunity today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Bonjardi. And you did almost use all your five minutes. So there you go. <laughs> um, I did want to again thank both of you. I wanted to first, of course, congratulate both of you on how far you've come and all of your amazing accomplishments for this city, for the state. Um, I'm relatively new to the state, so it's wonderful to see such passionate leadership come out of this election. And I wish both of you the best of luck. Um, looking forward to the debate that KITV4 will have with both of you on Saturday, is it October 10th? Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. so I look forward to that. Um, and for sure, again, I wanted to thank both of you for participating. Now, um, let's call on uh, Joffrey Kudiamat, who is the president of the Filipino Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii, who will make the closing remarks on behalf of the Quad Chamber. Thank you again for the opportunity. Uh, hello, everyone. I hope you all would agree with me that both Keith Amamiya and Rick Blangiardi did a superb job in trying to convince us who the better, better candidate or the candidate of choice should be for the uh, office of uh, the mayor. Uh, on behalf of the Filipino Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii, the Chinese Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii, the Hawaii Korean Chamber of Commerce and the Honolulu Japanese Chamber of Commerce, I'd like to thank both candidates for sharing their accomplishments, but more importantly, their plans should they be elected as mayor. Um, our city and county of 
Honolulu needs a mayor with the skills and the willingness to move Honolulu forward and maintain, and more importantly, improve its economic vitality. Uh, the people are counting on the mayor to provide the necessary leadership and the statesmanship for our city and county. I wanna thank the Quad Chamber partners and uh, most especially the astute and lovely Annalisa Burgos for, <laughs> for the successful forum today. Uh, and last but not least, I, I wanna send a big thank you to the audience and I hope you have um, a more familiarity with the candidates and where they stand on the issues and um, hopefully you can cast your vote with confidence as we select our next mayor. Uh, so once again, let me uh, send a thank you to both candidates. And this concludes our Quad Chamber Mayoral Candidate uh, Virtual Forum. Thank you and mahalo. Oh, thank, thank you. you very much. Aloha. Mahalo. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. See you.